thank you, Justin, for that kind introduction. I was actually thrilled when Justin extended the invitation I, because I had preached here once before and I'm unaccustomed to being invited back. So, <laughs> um, more seriously though, I, I was really looking forward to just express my gratitude uh, to God and to you for your faithful gospel witness in this area. The church that Kim and I attend, uh, our members of, is Summit. So we attend Summit here in Naples. And we pray for you almost every single week by name because we love what you're doing and we are behind what you're doing and we want to see God bless what you're doing. So I, I'm grateful to God to be here. Uh, Justin asked me to take just a couple of minutes to talk a little bit about this ministry, Great Commission Collective, which I'm happy to do. So he alluded to this. Uh, we are churches that are partnering together to plant churches and to strengthen leaders. So on the planting side, that means that we are assessing church planters. We're training church planters. We're funding church planters. And then we're supporting them and providing an ongoing care for them. So right now, there are nine churches that are being planted throughout the United States that we have the privilege of, of being involved in. We've got one that we're planning to plant somewhere in the next year up in Estero as well. And so there's a lot going on in the United States. We're planting churches as well in Scotland and Romania and India and East Africa and a number of other countries throughout the world. So that's kind of on the planting side. And then <clears throat> on the strengthening side, that means that we are, we are helping to train lead pastors. We are uh, creating cohorts for training. We're doing coaching. We're, we're working with elders to understand plurality because as the plurality goes, it seems like so goes the church. And we're attempting to define success as a family of churches, not simply through strong starts, but through leadership longevity, through leaders and people who are resilient because of the gospel. So, we're not a big group, and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful, and we are very grateful. I am very grateful that doing that allows me cultivate friendships with, uh, with Justin and, and the Mincy's and, and, and hopefully in the future more of you as well. So now more important than any network is the Word of God. And so I have been invited to preach from Acts chapter 20. And so you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. And while you're opening, let me just start with a little, little bit of context. So the date is somewhere around A.D. 57. The ship carrying Paul has docked in 
Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of Ephesus. And from there, Paul calls for the Ephesian elders, these old friends and, and, and comrades that he had. He, he wants them to join him. And he does this for a couple of different reasons. Number one, Paul is an intensely relational man. Paul was never merely fulfilling a job description. His heart was for the gospel and his heart were for people. And we see that come out in a number of places. But there's a second reason as well. And that is that Paul thinks he is going to die. And so we will discover as we read this together that his tone appears grave, his subject most serious, because his heart is fixed upon Jerusalem. So beginning in verse 17. Now, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, <clears throat> if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your word would work upon us this morning as it rings forth. And Lord, we pray that each of us would encounter you in some tangible, some quantifiable, some palpable way this morning, and that we would carry something from here that rings within our own soul and applies to where we're living right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to find hiking to be an excellent way to explore life's deeper questions with my kids. And such was the case a while back when my oldest son and I went hiking up into the Pennsylvania countryside. There was a trail that went about five miles up that just led to this breathtaking view 
over the, over the countryside. And so we're sitting there on an outcropping of rocks, and while we're there, a group of college students come, and we begin to engage them, and they say they're there to explore a cave, and they invite us to come along. And so as life found me that day, I'm, I'm following behind a group of people that I had never met to a place that I had never been to do something I had never done, which was to explore this cave. And so we are all kind of crawling through this cave together until it opens up into this area where it's like a big chamber, and it's lit up from the ceiling. And I look up, and there's a, there's a hole in the ceiling, and there's light shining down. And almost as if it's the reason why they came, the college students, one by one, begin climbing up the side of the cave wall, and they go through the hole in the roof. And so I'm watching them go up, second one go up, third one go up, fourth one go up. And I could feel my son, who at that point was about 10 years old, I could feel him getting more excited and more excited. So when the fourth college student cleared the hole, he turned to me and said, oh, Dad, Please let me go up the side of the cave wall. It'd be so cool to go up the side of the cave wall. That would be so neat. And, I'm, and, and so I'm trying to explain to him, son, your mom sent you and I up to build a memory together, and it's going to be really awkward if I go home alone without you because you've killed yourself. But, but then I thought, you know, I'm looking at him. I thought, you know what? It's about building a memory, and this is going to build up. Yeah, sure, go. Go ahead up the side of the cave wall. And so my son just kind of scampers right up the side of the cave wall. Now, I should have predicted what was going to happen next. I should have seen this from the beginning, but almost as if they had, they had coordinated this whole thing. There's five arms that come down through the hole, and they're doing this. They're saying, come on up. Come on up the side of the cable. And I'm looking up at that, and, and I'm saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, long ago, I stopped feeling the need to go up the side of a cave wall. I think it was around, like around the second or third child that kind of disinclined me from wanting to up the side. There's something about having a, a mortgage and car payments and a bad back that makes you not go up the side of the cave. And so I said, you know what? No, I'm going to kind of go back out of the cave, and I'll come around, and I'll pick you up, and we'll, and we'll walk back down the trail, which is what I did. And I'm walking back down the trail with my son. The air was thick with disappointment. And I realized what a mistake I had made, because again, it's about building a memory. And so I stopped. I said, son, we're going back. I'm going into the cave. I'm going up the side of the cave. And I knew it was the right decision when he said, yes, as if to say, my dad's not a wimp. <laughs> so 25 minutes later, I'm back in the cave, and I'm looking up the cave wall, and I start up the side of the cave wall, and there's one part where you're on a ledge and you have to push off the ledge and hit the other wall with your hand, hit the other ledge with your leg, and I hit the wall with my hand, and I go to hit the ledge with my leg, and I miss the ledge, and my foot begins sliding down the side of the cave wall, and I just go into lockdown. And so I'm spread eagle at the top as I'm about to go through the hole, and I'm thinking, well, here I am. I'm stuck. There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward, but to go forward comes at great risk. 
I'm thinking, I, I, I can't give up. I can't say, oh, I'm just going to fall. You know, that option wasn't open to me. But your mind does funny things. You know, I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I could just stay still. I understand in caves, the climate's the same all year round. Yes, I can live here. We can stay here. Tyler can go home and get Kim. They can bring groceries. They can decorate me for Christmas. Again, strange things go through the mind because you can't go back. I can't stay where I am. And yet going forward comes at great risk. To go forward, I'm going to have to take a risk. Do you ever get a sense that your own life is unfolding in the same way? There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only way to go is to go forward, but going forward comes at great risk. To go forward, there will be a cost. Paul is in a similar position. Different reasons, similar position. I was confronting risk because I did not want to miss a moment with my son. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I made it to the top and did not die. (laughs) Paul confronted risk because he was a Christian. Paul confronted risk because the Spirit of God compelled him. Look at verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. See, for Paul, there was no going back. He couldn't stay where he was. He had to go forward to Jerusalem. In fact, for Paul, the only certainty of his life was the certainty of uncertainty. The only certainty of his life was that there would be a cost to the gospel. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that The gospel imposes a similar experience of risk and cost upon us. I mean, certainly Paul is distinct in Scripture, but it imposes a similar experience. In other words, it makes the same kind of claim upon us today because because the more we we move toward Christ— And the more we we move toward maturity, we discover that the Christian life is a type of mysterious suspense where, to use the words of verse 22, we are constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen. And the more we understand that, the more we come face to face with an undeniable fact, both for Paul and for us, and that is that for the Christian, the gospel makes an audacious claim. The gospel makes an audacious claim. So together this morning, I want to look at what is this audacious claim of the gospel. In fact, I think there are three of them that that spring from this text. Number one, this is claim number one. Here it is. Go forth uncertain. Go forth uncertain. In fact, verse 22, which I just read to you, that's... That's just a great summary of Paul's overall experience with God. God creates this compulsion. He says, constrained by the Spirit. He sets Paul in motion. I'm going to Jerusalem. But he withholds from Paul what his will is as he goes, not knowing what will happen. 
And the more I've thought about that, the more I've read that, the more I've realized that I think that forms a common way that people experience God. In fact, that people experience God's direction. I mean, it's it's certainly that way for Paul. I mean, the thread of this kind of experience with God began for Paul all the way back at his conversion. And in in Acts chapter 8, you know, the Spirit of God says, rise. Jesus says, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You know, just that rise, get in motion, and I'll get back to you on exactly what's going to happen as you're moving toward me. And this is hard for us. Because we're like, wait, what am I supposed to do? No, no, you got to give me the whole picture, Lord. And God says, no, no, you don't understand. I gave you what you need to know. Rise, enter the city, I'll get back to you. We'll fill in the blanks as you go. You will be told what you are to do. We say, Lord, but you don't understand me. See, I need the whole plan. I'm a kind of type A personality. You know that about me. You created me. I I like to be in control. I need to know exactly what's happening. And God is saying, no, no, you don't understand. See, I'm rewiring you because you're, you're going to learn how to trust me. You're going to learn what it means to follow not yourself anymore, but follow me as Lord. And again, this happened to Paul, that Acts chapter 13, the Spirit speaks, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called him. Well, what's the work? What have you called them to? Lord, Lord, we need more information. We need clarity on what you're doing. And God says, no, you don't need clarity. You need to be constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Now, here's the question we have to wrestle through together. Why would God do that to Paul? Because that bridges over into another question. Why does God do that to us? And I can't even begin to speak to all the reasons, but I think at least one of them is because our uncertainty serves a vital plan or a vital role in God's plan, our uncertainty plays a vital role in God's plan. Our uncertainty becomes a kind of daily reminder of our dependence upon God, a daily reminder of who God is, a daily reminder that He is God and we are not. One of the things we're talking about this morning is the, just the, the nature of risk, the existence of risk. And here's, here's part of the point I want to get to you, get, get across, is that the existence, the mere existence of risk reminds us of how much greater God is than we are, because God doesn't take risks, nor does He need to be a risk taker, because God is neither going, because He's already there, nor is He ever not knowing, because He knows all things. The presence of risk, the mere presence of risk in our life reminds us each and every day of our humanity, that we are not divine. We are human. We are limited. We live with ignorance. We don't know the future. Only God controls all things. I mean, in reality, we control very little 
We, we, we want to exert control as human beings. It's natural to reach for control, but, but, but we go to like strange places to do. You know, Kim and I lived for 50 years in Pennsylvania. I lived for half my life in the Pittsburgh area, half my life in the Philadelphia area. One snowstorm, okay, one snowstorm is, is enough to like, um, okay, not even a snowstorm. Let me say it this way. Even the threat of a snowstorm will change the whole nature of the community up there. You know, it will immediately like glue people to the television and 24-hour reporting and, and, and an immediate need to just exert control over, over anything they can do. I mean, folks will be sent to the market. They'll be walking up and down the aisles, and all you hear, hear them saying is, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. Because there's, I don't know, this strange thing that happens where a storm might be coming, and you need a sandwich and a glass of milk. Who knows what, what's going on there? But we crave this, this risk-free existence. And yet risk serves a central purpose in the life of a believer. Because risk uncovers, risk reasserts a reality that was initially uncovered for us in the heart of the gospel. See, the gospel arrives into our life. We don't know Christ. The gospel arrives into our life, and it says first about us, okay, you're not omniscient. You are not independent. You are not strong. You are not your own savior. Your good works aren't going to get you there. You are weak. You are dependent. You are limited. You need a savior. And we must trust Jesus to save us, but also... Trust him for the journey after he has saved us. And here's the thing. God delights in putting us in this position. God delights in putting our church in this position of going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen. Because you know what it does? Over time, it reshapes our soul around trusting him. And it begins to orient us to walking not by sight, but by faith. And God knows that. And so he uses that. And he's always done that. I mean, all the way back in, in, in Genesis, you know, like Genesis 12, he says to Abram, Abram, can I have your attention? Yes, Lord. I have your attention fully? Yes, Lord. Okay, here's the plan. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go where? To the land where? I'll show you that. Go to the land I will show you. Oh, where, where's the land, Lord? No, you get going. I'll show you the land. Oh, wait, Lord, I, you don't understand. I may not like the land. You know, the land, the land may, be, may be toxic. There may be giants in the land there may be those people in the land, Lord, and you know how I feel about those, those people. And God says, no, Abram, and he says the same thing to us. No, no, you don't understand. I want you constrained by the Spirit, going in the direction to which I've called you, not knowing 
what will happen. And I know, I know we begin to kind of wrap our brains around this this morning. We say, that's, Dave, that's crazy. That's absurd. It's irrational. It's audacious. That's my point. That's my point. The gospel makes an audacious claim. It says, go forth uncertain. And then there's a second claim. Claim number two. Prepare for difficulty. Prepare for difficulty. So verse 23 adds this additional twist to the audacious claim. Constrained by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul wasn't like completely ignorant. He, he did know at least one thing, and that was that imprisonment and afflictions <laughs> await. I, I don't know if your mind works like mine, but you know, when I read this, I think, you know, if I'm Paul, I'm praying, Lord, can we do this in one of two ways? Can you either give me the whole picture or can you give me complete ignorance? But if you're going to let me in on just one thing, does it really need to be that imprisonment and afflictions await me? It's like Paul knew there was danger up ahead. He knew there was injury up ahead. He had a sense for the ending, but he just didn't know how it was going to happen. You know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, this is kind of like, um, you know, anybody ever watch any of the Star Treks? Okay, come on. This is a safe space, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Any, any, over the years, there's been like Captain Kirk and Captain Picard and Cisco and Archer and I, I don't even know. But inevitably, they were all the same in one way. They had, they had that transporter room. And, and, and there was all these main crew members, and then they'd go on a mission down to the surface, and, and inevitably there would, be like, there would be like main crew member, main crew member, main crew member, and then there'd be this other guy who nobody's ever seen. And you just realize, oh man, he's like alien bait. That's why he exists, because he's going down to the surface, and he's not coming back. So they would get on the transporter, and you'd realize, oh, my God, that guy's never coming back, because he's just, you know, you never see him. You want to, like, scream at the team, don't you understand? These guys always come back. You, nobody knows you. You're not coming back. <laughs> you have a sense for the ending. You just don't know how, how it's going to happen. Here's what Paul knew. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen, but I do know this. There will be a cost. It will be difficult. It will be unsafe. That word unsafe, I'm 62 years old, that word unsafe has never been more charged than it is right now on the heels of a pandemic and in the climate that we live and lead in, where, where safety has been elevated to a need that is almost parallel to food and shelter. In fact, even the role of parenting 
is almost being re-engineered from training our kids to accept risk to helping our kids avoid risk at all costs. So we don't want them to be merely physically safe. We want them to be emotionally safe. And by the way, we don't know one another, but I'm not up here advocating that you put your children in situations where they're consistently emotionally unsafe. What I am saying is that some parents work overtime to protect their kids from any failure, from any emotional discomfort. And the challenge is we don't prepare them for the church. You know, for the church, where, you know, because the challenge, with, the challenge of following Jesus is he like crawls right into our safe space and just disrupts it by connecting us to other people to other people who may be completely unlike us in different ways. In fact, Jesus says, okay, now that I have your attention, now that I have your allegiance, let's do this. Love your enemies. Forgive one another. Love one another. I mean, being part of a church in Christian community where you're really building lives together, that means that we're sinned against by one another. What's so safe about that? It means we have unpredictable personalities in our small group. And yeah, you're thinking about somebody else. I'm talking about you. It means there's risk. And just in speaking for myself, there's this fundamental feeling. Actually, let me just speak for all of us. There is just... This seems to be a fundamental human drive that we have to just, to just protect comfort. The desire to remain hassle-free, to, to rule over our life like God. To eliminate risk, to obliterate costs, to keep difficulties away because you know, difficulties and discomfort, they're kind of synonymous. If it doesn't assault our comfort, it's not really a difficulty. I mean, what's the big deal of Paul saying in verse 23? I, I only know that hotels and hot tubs await me. It doesn't have the same impact, does it? It doesn't land in the same way. Because difficulties, by design, strip us down and violate our comforts and keep us rooted in what really really matters. I mean, even as I'm talking about this, this this theme resonates deeply for me right now. I I spent 30, close to 30 years as a pastor in one church, and through circumstances I could have never predicted nor avoided, we found ourselves on the outside of what we had spent our entire life giving ourselves to and, and building. And here's the thing, and if you're a little older, you, you, can, you can get this. I had a certain vision for what life was going to look like. Can you relate to that? You know, what life was going to look like is, because you kind of live life thinking, well, I, I'll invest in my, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, and then I'll, I'll live out of the fruit of that in my 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it all detonated. And we had this big life reset. And I began to understand that that sometimes God doesn't even tell us, hey, you're going to Jerusalem. (laughs) 
It's just about like going not knowing. And I didn't know at the time that it, it would be a, a gateway to, to, to bigger fields and, and, and a more fruitful way of sowing the gospel. I just knew it was, there was difficulty. Why? Because the way God positions us for mission is often, if not always, costly. I don't understand that, but it seems to be pretty consistent. Why? Because the gospel makes an audacious claim. Now, we hear this and we think, yes, okay, that kind of, it kind of, it inspires me. I, 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 I'm ready to go. I, I want to go without knowing. I want to board a jet and go to Indonesia not knowing what will happen and die if necessary. Okay, well, well good, but can, can you maybe like go to children's ministry um, and serve there not knowing what will happen? Because, I mean, who really ever knows what's going to happen once you, you know, you take a role in children's ministry? Can you step up and use your gifts not knowing what will happen? Can you walk across the street to a neighbor and kind of invite them to church not knowing what will happen? See, Paul is speaking within his role and in his call. The question we all have to wrestle with this morning is, what is your Jerusalem? I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. What is your Jerusalem this morning? What does a Spirit-constrained risk look like for you? And if you can hear this and you can identify with this, I want, you to, I want you to hear God's solution. Just Let's just accept. Let's together accept and come to terms with the reality that our life is going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen because nothing attacks the idol of comfort quicker than being led into an uncomfortable risk. And, and some of you are there right now. You feel compelled by the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit. You have sought God. You have sought counsel. And now it's just time to move forward. Others of us, we need to be there right now. You know, We're too comfortable. Last time we took a risk, I mean, we were listening to sermons on cassette. That's how long it's been. You're under-challenged lethally bored. Here's God's prescription. Listen to the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. What is your Jerusalem? Maybe it means reconciling with someone, and you know you've needed to take this step, but you fear what's going to happen when you do. 
Maybe it means starting a business for the, for the glory of God in order for the kingdom of God to be built in some greater way. Maybe it means having a conversation that you've been avoiding with your spouse. Maybe it means inviting a neighbor, opening up your home and not seeing your home simply as a sanctuary, but opening up your home and having a neighbor over for dinner. Here's the thing. God fights for us. God loves us. In fact, God loves us too much to allow us to squander our lives in the gray twilight of ambivalence. And so he says, claim number two, prepare for difficulty. Which leads us to the final claim, claim number three, which is value the gospel above all. Value the gospel above all. Paul says in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace. So so it's kind of like Paul slaps on an accountant's hat here, and he begins to, to assign true value to things. And I think here we see like the true audacity of the claim, because Paul says, I value the gospel above my own life. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's crazy on one. I do not my, account my life of any value. We read this and we think, can Paul really be saying what he's saying? Can he really be saying what it appears? He's saying that fulfilling the gospel is more valuable than even his life. And I love that. I love the fact that Paul is saying, Paul, the apostle Paul, the only guy that might appear to have like a justifiable exemption because he's so critical to the kingdom advancement. But Paul says, no, I don't protect myself because I perceive myself to be too valuable. I perceive my role to be too valuable. No, I value the gospel above my life. Paul says, I value the gospel above my relationships. See, it's interesting. Inherent to Paul's definition of success in life, in ministry, seem to be having relationships. I mean, this passage started with Paul calling for the Ephesian elders in verse 17. In verse 18, he's saying, you know what? I lived with you. I, I, I loved you. Verse 19, he says, I, we served with tears. We didn't read verse 34, but at, at the very end of this section, you know, they're, they're on the beach. They're kneeling. They're praying together. They're weeping. I mean, talk about risk. We didn't read this either, but just later on in this, in this chapter, Paul says, hey, um, by the way, after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in. Actually, men from among you, they're going to arise too. It's going to be messy. It's going to be, oh gosh, it's going to be a mess. By the way, peace out. I'm, I'm heading out. In, in other words, Paul knew that leaving would be hard. Paul knew that people would be at risk, but he had a way of thinking that didn't elevate self-protection above the gospel. He, he left because he trusted God that others would arise in the providence of God. And I say that because sometimes we assume that the best way to honor God 
is to protect our relationships, to protect our, our money, to, if you're a leader here, to protect our, our people from risk. And again, I'm not advocating unnecessary risks or foolish risks. I'm just saying there's a whole other way the kingdom of God works that is so counterintuitive that it lands on us in a shocking slash audacious way. One of my favorite quotes um, that kind of gets at this is, is by John Piper. John Piper once said, quote, No local church can go, no local church can afford to go without the encouragement and nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. Now you get this. You get this. You're living in this right now. Just planted a church. First Sunday without them here. If, if you're like most, the next six months are going to be challenging. When I had the privilege of leading a church uh, in the Philadelphia area, we, we planted 10 churches. And I remember almost every time as we brought them up and prayed for them, I remember praying and in my mind thinking, how will we ever rebound from this? How are we ever going to move forward with it? This sacrifice seems to... Lord, look at the people on the stage. Really, these people? It had to be these people? Because we're all kind of wired the same. We tend to think of planting as loss. And, but here's what, I want, here's what I want to do. I want to come... You know, and, and give you the benefit of, of having walked that road over many years of, of sowing out and what I've come to learn from that. And, and that is that multiplication, like what you've done, multiplication actually becomes a mega vitamin that invests back into the church in ways that you would never imagine. That there's something about mission, there's something about the sacrifices that are made for mission that keeps a dynamic of sacrifice in the church, which builds a life and a vitality into the church where, where as, as Piper said, the encouragement and nourishment comes to us through that in a way that can come and be achieved in no other way. And I want to encourage you, that's what's up ahead for you. That's what's up ahead for you. And so Paul valued the gospel over his life. Paul valued the gospel above his relationships. And this is, this is where we end. Paul valued the gospel. And I want to get you thinking about this one with me. Paul valued the gospel above the fruit of the gospel. And I realize that's a strange one because... You know, we all long for fruit, We're fruit in our parenting, fruit in our leadership, fruit in our relationships. But here's what I'm trying to say. Paul didn't hold God hostage for seeing a certain fruit in a certain time period. What he, and this, what he did, and this is using his words, is he just sought to be faithful, to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the gospel of God's grace. He just sought to be faithful 
to testify. Paul recognized that there are some things that are so worthy, it's, it's mere obedience is enough. It's some, things, some things are so worthy, it's glorious just to be a part of them and to entrust the fruit to God in His timing and in His timetable. I mentioned the, the ten churches that we had the privilege of planting. Let me give you a story about one of them briefly, and this is where we end. It was in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is just south of Philadelphia. And it was planted by a heroic man with, with an amazing family. And this is in a very impoverished uh, city that's, again, south of Philadelphia, urban. Um, and there were many risks involved in planting this church. And as as time passed, as one year went into two years, went into three years, went into four years, into, into the fifth year, both the lead pastor and those that were serving and helping him became more persuaded that the Lord was drawing the church to a close. And that was difficult. And these are the stories you don't tend to hear about, you know. Because incredible sacrifices are made, prayers are prayed, money's given. <clears throat> and on the final Sunday, Cornerstone Church of Chester, on that final Sunday, they had a banquet. And, and at this banquet, after the service, they, they just reviewed and testified and celebrated the grace of God upon the church. And as that banquet came to a close, and the history of that local church drew to an end, there was one brother, he was sitting over in the corner, and he just stood up spontaneously, and he, he began to sing a song, which I haven't heard for years, but it was, it was, haven't you been good? Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? And as his voice kind of echoed off of the banquet walls, and there was a holy hush that kind of settled on everybody. And children from different corners of the room began to get up, and they were, they were dancing around. And the, the Spirit of God began to stir among the people of God. And then people began to, began to sing. They began to join their verse, voices, earnestly believing the substance of what they had been singing, that God had been good to them. God had been good. And as the lead pastor, who's, you know, his pastor was ending, he's sitting there, he's looking out, he realizes that there are some goals that are so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. The gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And so, faith... You are called to reach this community. You are called to build this church. You are called to risk invitations to people. You are called to plant more churches. You are called to approach the next 10 years, not with the demand that everything we do will bear immediate fruit, but with the sense that it's glorious to even make the attempt. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that the day of risk and cost are over. But I sense it's just beginning. And so, 
constrained by the Spirit, we are going to Jerusalem not knowing what awaits us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you know, and we thank you that you went before us and sacrificed yourself in our place. And we thank you that we can trust you even when we go not knowing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.